place it comfortably. So, expanding on the theme yesterday a little bit more. The title of this talk is Self-Confidence and No Self-Confidence. I need to clarify what I mean by that, because you could take it two ways. By no, non-self, no self-confidence, I mean non-self-confidence. Confidence that's based on no ego identity. So self-confidence and non-self-confidence may be a better way of putting it. But let me begin with the words of um, uh, Lin Chi, who's known in Japan as Rinzai, where Rinzai Zen comes from, and as part of our lineage. He was a very uncompromising teacher, very um, unusual teacher. Master Lynchy taught page. Master Lynchy taught what I want to tell you is that there is no Buddha, no Dharma, no practice, no realization. What is it that you are looking for in other people? What is it that you lack? Do not be like blind men or blind women. It is as though you want to put another head on top of the one you already have. My friends, at this very moment, your own wonderful function is no different from the wonderful function of the masters and the Buddhas. It is only because you lack confidence that you are looking for something outside of you. Make no mistake, there is no dharma outside of you for you to run after. There is no dharma within to attain. It would be better to listen to my words, take a rest and practice having nothing to do. If something has arisen, do not try to make it continue. If something has not arisen, do not try to make it arise. This action is more valuable than 10 years pilgrimage. <clears throat> and Thich Nhat Hanh comments, if we see the Buddha as something solid outside of ourselves, it's better to have no Buddha. If we see the Dharma like that, it's better to have no Dharma. If we are sitting in the Dharma hall thinking that the statue of the Buddha is the Buddha, it's better to come outside and look at an autumn leaf. We're more likely to see the Buddha there. Rather than follow a master's words, it would be better if we just took a rest. To rest means to stop running after things. If we can sit still and keep wrong perceptions from rising within us, it's more valuable than 10 years of walking from here to there, looking for a teacher to learn the Dharma. Mm -hmm. And when we do session, really session, we've just set up a structure in which we do nothing which we rest and we do nothing and we let go. And we don't try to make certain experiences arise and we don't try to hang on to them when they, when they do arise. That's what we do. That's what Sazen is. That's what all of this is, is structured for. Now, one imagines that when the Buddha 
um, was awakened and then he went back to his friends in the forest and to people in the outside world who knew him. Um, presumably they saw a difference in his demeanour and a difference in his body language and presumably what they saw is instead of this earnest young man, you know, searching for something, he was kind of just free of all of that and just, just wide open and not searching for anything anymore. And uh, his first teaching is the, fir- the Four Noble Truths, which are, which are instructive, but that's his first teaching. And if you notice how his teaching matures as he goes through his life, it moves towards more of the, the theme of, like you get in the Diamond Sutra or the Heart Sutra, that there is no attainment, there's nothing to attain. And his actual words were, his realisation as we view it through um, the Zen tradition, wonderful, wonderful. Um, now I realise that all beings are the Tathagata, have Buddha nature. It is only their delusions and attachments which stop them from realising this very fact. And to give it a more um, accessible and less esoteric understanding of Buddha nature, just the intelligence, the organic intelligence that runs through all things. Call it good Buddha nature, call it God, call it the Tao, call it natural intelligence, same thing. It runs through all things and it's intelligent. A seed growing into a tree, it's intelligence. You growing from a baby into an adult, intelligence. We're part of all that intelligence, we're never separated from it. And when um, Zen teachers, you know, have come back to, like from Dogen going back from China to Japan, after his awakening experience, when he comes back, people see a different demeanour in that person which is more confident, you know, more relaxed. They're, they're different somehow than when they went away. And I say, well, what, what did you find? What did you find? You must have found something that you're so happy. And, and Dogen doesn't fall into that trap and say, I've, I've found something. He says... My nose is vertical and my eyes are horizontal. That's what I found. Uh At another time he said, sparrows go cheep cheep and um, crows go craw craw. Uh That's what I found. Uh What do you mean? Uh Didn't you find the great enlightenment? Yeah, that's what it is. Uh So, non-attainment. Mm-hmm. Nothing to find. How do you find confidence? Mm-hmm. Do you find confidence or does confidence find you? Mm-hmm. Now when you look at some of the basic stories that make up our practice, like in our Zen koans, the first koan, as you would be aware, is Joshu's dog, where the koan Mu comes from. Among us, um, Joshu, does a dog have Buddha nature or not? Instead of Joshu giving the standard Buddhist answer, yes, all beings have Buddha nature, dogs are beings, so therefore it's got Buddha nature, he throws a curveball. Mm-hmm. Says no. Mm-hmm. Doesn't have. 
no Buddha nature. Mm-hmm. And that challenges the monk and the rest of us to look a little, little more deeply into the matter rather than just staying up here at the intellectual level and getting a very superficial confidence you know, from the teacher saying, well, yes, you have Buddha nature. Joshua mm-hmm. wanted the monk and he wants us to go deeper than that and, and therefore into a deeper um, sense of confidence of our experience in the world. But the, um, the monk in the story, uh, as all the commentaries state, he's lacking confidence. Mm-hmm. Joshu looks like he's got Buddha nature, the Buddha does. Dog, not the dog, me, no. I don't have confidence that I have Buddha nature. And he's, he's, he's like the rest of us. All of us come to practice coming from a similar position. Like I'm lacking something, I don't have confidence. How can I get confidence? Mm-hmm. Now, in the teaching of um, the Four Noble Abodes, a classic Buddhist teaching, um, love, compassion, joy and equanimity, the way they're arrayed is to help us clarify what they are. They come with a far enemy and a near enemy. So, for instance, um, there's equanimity, serenity, and the far enemy is restlessness, which is really obvious. But the one that looks like it, but it's not quite the same as indifference. Mm-hmm. And if we to, to apply that same method, the, um, the, the uh, far enemy of confidence would appear to be something like low self-worth, low self-esteem. But the near enemy is arrogance. Looks like it but it's not exactly the same as true confidence. In terms of self-confidence, I want to clarify this before I talk about it further. I I don't want to convey a view of self-confidence that comes from social standing or or whatever. is bad. I don't want to set up a, a good and bad dynamic in this. There's valuable things that come from self-confidence. Um, the point I want to make, and I think that other Zen teachers would want to make, is that it's just you can go deeper than that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's that self-confidence based on social self is a relative and, and not entirely stable sense of confidence because it can be blown around by circumstances and by praise and blame, etc. how we're doing in life, success, failure, etc. But there's something underneath all of that um, which is a more grounded kind of confidence. But the types of self-confidence that people, what base their, people base their, their, their self-confidence on are things like their, their social status, Um, their intellect, um, their beauty, their wealth, their political power. And I don't just mean people in government, I mean political power in the workplace or on the street, whatever it might be. Social charm. Um, And I suppose in some ways 
people do get some lift in their self-confidence. Some people would get a, a lift in self-confidence if they had a facelift. No? Probably do. You know? Or if they got promoted, do you know, or if they got a PhD, do you know, there would, there would probably be some, some sense of self-worth developing, although not always. You know, the success, worldly success, doesn't necessarily bring confidence. One of my um, clinical supervisors from years ago worked for many years um, as a student counsellor at Sydney University and he used to tell me of so many stories of people who got their first degree and then their second degree and their third degree and they feel, still had a low sense of worth, self-worth. Yeah. didn't change anything. Yeah. They thought it would, but it didn't. Now, psychologists would say, many psychologists, including me, would say that there's another way in which we actually develop confidence in the world, and that's through whether we were lucky enough to develop a secure attachment style from, as a result of our, the way that we were brought up as a child. And if we were lucky enough to have at least one parent, two, or an extended family where we were unconditionally loved, particularly in the first two years of our life, um, that that will, that will move us in the direction of having a secure attachment and therefore be more comfortable within ourselves and less critical and more comfortable engaging with other people and being alone, well, the, the, that's, they're the, they're the favourable circumstances in which we would build confidence, got nothing to do so much with, with social status. Now, personally, I think there's truth in that, but I don't think that it's the full story. Um, I think it's a good thing that, that children would be lucky enough to have that kind of um, care because what they're doing is that they're they're experiencing the unconditional from a very early age. They're not being loved because um, they're smart or <coughs> funny or skillful. They might for those things. But there's a sense, I'm just being loved for who I am. And that's very valuable, you know, for a child to have that. But it doesn't seem to be the full story. It, it probably helps people get... Um, a secure enough sense of themselves to get by in the world. But the stories of some of the old Zen teachers and so on seems to indicate that perhaps if you've got a secure attachment, you know, you kind of live a comfortable enough middle-class life and you really don't have the motivation to search further, you know, for a, a deeper sense of... Um, understanding and insights. So it's sort of it's comfortable enough so there's really not much motivation to, to look any more closely at things. And when we look at the life of someone like Dogen, um, his mother died when he was five and we don't know all the details of his upbringing but he was very um, shaken by that experience and it was said that when he went to her funeral and saw the incense smoke disappearing into the, into the sky, 
he was deeply touched by the impermanence of life. And that was the, that was the uh, burr under his saddle, right? That was, that was the, that experience of losing his mother and seeing the ephemeral nature of life was the motivation for him to start practicing. It's also well known in Japan, in Japanese monasteries, um, traditionally Japan didn't like have orphanages, like Christians set up orphanages for children who didn't have parents. And so what would happen is that the temples would take in, you know, a few um, boys in this instance, you know, um, to give them care, you know, and to raise them. And uh, it was often uh, the boys who were orphans who ended up being the Zen teachers eventually. It's like their unfavourable circumstance in life and also being thrown a lifeline you know, were the, were the factors that led them to them searching more, you know, looking more deeply and trying to understand what life was about. Mm-hmm. So there's more to this, I think, than just secure attachment. There's also an Australian example of that. A really wonderful book to read is by Facey, I think William Facey, but I'm not sure. It's called um, A Fortunate Life um, and describes what you would think would be a very unfortunate life. Uh Um, Here was a boy who was abused, neglected from an early age, born into poverty, um, and he grows up to be just a wonderful human being. Uh So that transformation can happen regardless of whether we were born into favourable circumstances or unfavourable circumstances, because... As the Buddha said, we all share the same fundamental Buddha nature. People would often, in an orthodox way, think that the way to confidence is going up. You go up to get to confidence, you know, out of low self-worth into high self-worth. Paradoxically, from a Zen point of view, it's kind of like the paradox is you go down. You let go of things. Um, It's actually a pathway of humility. And as you may have heard me say once before, a few times before, the word humility, to understand the meaning of the word, comes from the Latin humus, H-U-M-U-S, as in humus, as in soil. So it has this meaning of being earthy or down to earth. So the meaning of being humble or humility is to be down to earth, mm-hmm. to be real. Mm-hmm. And that is the experience of doing um, session, you know, and years and years of, of Zen practice. It, it's a path of humility. And you see into the full self, you see into the into the, the self that's just based on social status, you know, and the and the grasping after that. And and it falls away. The more you look at it, the more it falls away. There's a letting go process, there's a surrendering process because you just see how kind of ephemeral and sort of insubstantial it really is. 
So all of that falls away through practice. And people don't, particularly in this sort of narcissistic age, people don't understand. I can see it on an everyday level. People, like so many people don't understand that humility would lead to a deeper confidence in themselves and they dread it because um, they think if, to be humble is they equate it. People have told me they equate it with low self-esteem. If you apologise, then it demonstrates about low self-esteem. You know, It's weird. It's odd. But people believe it. And so they won't, won't apologise, won't forgive. You know, stand their ground. You know, keep their status. Um, but what happens through Zen practice is that that just falls away. And as it falls away, as you know from your own experience, it falls away into embodiment and it falls away into just experiencing the present moment coming and going as it is without attaching to anything. And if that's your experience, it's on the ground, it's got no airs and graces, and, and it actually creates confidence because if you're on the ground, you can't fall. Mm-hmm. If you've got an elevated view of yourself or a social, state, social status, you can fall. And you may even go through your life fearing you're going to fall, lose your wealth, lose your attractiveness, lose your intelligence, demand, whatever. You know, it's all, all very fragile. Mm-hmm. But if you're embodied, and, and your experience of life is based on this, right? well, that's, that's entirely different, completely different. The other thing that happens in the process of Sazen, and um, uh, we, we, read, we read this over and over again, um, I don't know if it's one of the readings of Session, but the reason why I include it is that reading by John Wellwood on power and vulnerability. That's a really clearly written statement about the process of meditation and Zen practice where um, there's a false power based just on pure self-confidence and it protects a whole lot of experience of vulnerability. It's like a hard shell around the soft centre. and. As he says so eloquently, you know, is that you 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 embrace the vulnerability, right? and again, paradoxically, if you embrace the vulnerability, there's a deeper sense of confidence that you you develop. You see that in Zen, and you see that in psychotherapy with people too. If you do. If you do sasin and you do it long enough, you can't but experience your own vulnerability. If it's a path of um, self-honesty as well as a path of self-compassion and you look into what is really there, you, you can't help but touch base with that. And underneath the righteousness or the anger or the arrogance is a 
anxiety, fear, anger, sadness, loss, grief, confusion. And instead of trying to deny it, you just you just be present to it. And just recognizing that you're a you're a fully signed up member of the flawed humanity club, like everyone else, brings a sense of humanity and paradoxically a sense of confidence because if you can be in touch with your own vulnerability rather than trying to project power all the time, then there's a congruence in your experience and you've got nothing to hide. Nothing to hide. That's what the basis of shame is. You know, the people experience so... um, uh, that's so widespread. You know, it's, it's like shame is trying to hide something that's there, it's inside, you know. And the more you try to hide it, the more you're trapped in the shame. And uh, when you allow that vulnerability to show, well, there's nothing to be ashamed about anymore. You can see this in, um, in, in intimate relationships too, you know. I'm, I presume all of you, as well as me, have had the experience where you've been having an argument with your partner and you're not getting on and, you, and you're both locked into your positions of the way you see things and so on and it's maybe getting very heated or you know, very tense. And then the other person then just shows a moment of vulnerability right? and your heart melts. Right? Just all the right and wrong just drops away. Mm-hmm. And and you embrace their vulnerability, and then to you, if you show that vulnerability, with the vast majority of people, that's what happens. Mm-hmm. But we fear it, you know, and we cover up our vulnerability with right and wrong, you know, and uh, don't touch base with it. So, the path of humility, the path of allowing our vulnerability to be there doesn't lead to low self-worth. It leads to a a grounded kind of confidence. Mm -hmm. All I can say to you is trust the process and find out from your own experience. Mm -hmm. Me telling you won't, won't make any difference. So, we don't have to set up self-confidence with non-self-confidence. We don't have to look at it that way. Um, the self-confidence in the social sense is, in, in Zen terms, it's a confidence of the relative world. Right? Um, but there's also this deeper confidence of touching the absolute, now, I don't particularly like the word absolute, but that's what it's referred to in Zen. But what it's simply referring to is life as it is, the suchness of life. That's what we mean by the absolute. And that's, when that's your ground, um, then there's a natural confidence that comes out of that. It's not arrogant, it's not better or worse, it's not competing. It's the confidence that comes from... Um, connection with others and the, and the connection with the whole of life. And yes, there's a, there may be a, a social self that um, is good at doing certain things 
or being in the world in a certain way, and that, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But it's not the be-all and end-all of it. So, to put it in sort of more contemporary terms rather than old Buddhist language, we all come to Dharma practice lacking that deeper sense of confidence in some way, like the monk in, in uh, the cow and Joshi's dog. We can all kind of relate to him in a way. And if we stay with the practice long enough, we, we do touch base with that deeper sense of experience, that experience of just the suchness of life. And confidence does come out of this practice, it grows out of it. Mm. So, thank you. <laughs>